I think you give off vibes that you smoke weed, whether or not you do, because you have like this the pseudo surfer ish hair and yeah. you're laid back with all like your conscious leadership shit. So mm. I think that it's just like you come across as like a like a, a stoner hippie bro. I come mm-hmm. across as whatever the fuck gym bro or whatever. Oh, wow. That is the only thing I can think. God, I'm so glad that we found a little button in yours. <laughs> me? Call me a bro? I'm barely oh, this is a for little sure. button in yours. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> and we just found I it. Have, I feel like I've, I've um, been able to assemble myself to see, like, to, to be like more composed and cooler and less nerdy as I've gotten older. And so mm. it's actually offensive because I was... Everybody back when being a bro would have been advantageous. It was like, what a fucking dweeb. And now, <laughs> when it's advantageous to be like, what a dweeb, when somebody's like, you're a bro, I'm like, this is this is offensive to my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> this is existentially offensive. where we explore the common challenges all humans, creators, and leaders face, and break down preconceived notions of common self-help ideas. We're your hosts. I am Ricky Goldenberg. I am Justin Mulvaney. And I am Corey Wilkes. So today, before the episode, we had been jamming about uh, talking about success and we really wanted to do a series of episodes. To be clear, we're not, but over time we will. Uh, <laughs> a series of episodes on uh, myths and realities of success and how we see that play out. And the starting point that we all eventually triangulated on, you may or may not have heard about it before, is this concept of what's called the arrival fallacy. So strictly defined, the arrival fallacy is the false assumption that once we reach a goal, a goal that we have set for ourselves, we will achieve enduring happiness, right? So the notion that is once I get achieve that goal, once I get past this milestone, I will then have enduring happiness. And I wanted to kick, I wanted to, it says false assumption here. I want to kick off our show with a brand new segment inspired by our, our nearest and dearest Psy D, Corey Wilkes. Real or bullshit? Oh, definitely bullshit. I mean, like, it is a fallacy, so the fallacy is true, but arriving is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So Corey, uh, he's the, our, our head of bullshit here has deemed the arrival's fallacy is true. The notion of arrival's bullshit. Ricky, what about you? I'm in total alignment. I did not, true story, we were talking about this. I had no idea that this concept existed, but as soon as we talked about it and it was described, I was like, oh, I mean, uh, yes, we should talk about it a whole lot more. So definitely true. I guess I'll be with Corey and say that the, the fallacy is a fallacy as itself. It is bullshit. There are false assumptions, all that good stuff. But definitely, yes. What do you think, Justin? Uh, unanimous votes across the board. Arrival is bullshit. The fallacy is real. I feel like you don't have to have 
lived particularly long to have a personal experience of the arrival fallacy, which is actually where I wanted to start today. So maybe we can start, it seems like we all are unanimous that it's real, on what's your own personal experience with the arrival fallacy? Before we go into anyone that we work with, how is this showing up? Do you want to go? Or are you thinking? The hardest thing actually for me in this moment is I'm like, what example do I give you? There's so many examples that I have of this expectation. The way I really think about it is whenever you hear yourself saying like, oh, I'll be happy when, or I'll be able to do it when, or like this is going to happen and then this is going to change things. And so I think a lot of times it's probably tied most easily. You could tie it most easily to things like financial, new role, new partnership, like those are the the quickest ones that I can think about for myself that I'm like, oh yeah, I've definitely felt this. And then that's something I've done so much work on this, like myself. This is a thing that I've worked so freaking hard on is a, is kicking out that kind of game, but it still definitely exists. So I'm trying to think like, oh, what was it? I think, you know, it, it might've been the, the first example that I can think of is kind of looking for a certain level of, um, like academic rigor, right? Being in high school and saying, oh, like if I get all straight A's, then I'll, then I'll be smart. I'll be smart. I'll be happy. And then I went to college and I was like, straight A's just demonstrates I can do rote memorization. Not that I understand anything. And it was a pretty brutal reawakening that the expectation that arriving in university and having done all the work to get me there, that I suddenly was going to be intelligent, connected, be able to like really create things. And I got to college. I don't know if everyone else had this experience, but I got to college and I was like, oh, oh, oh no, I am not ready for this. I, I actually don't know anything. And so that was a pretty harsh, that's one of like the first ones that I can think of off the cuff. That's not necessarily tied to financial or relationships or things like that. Showing up Corey, what about yourself? Handed to me. So for me, there was a very specific moment. So like, like I said, I have a doctorate and that took a total between like bachelor's, master's and like the actual doctoral program over 12 years. Oof. Half because I fucked around a little bit in early grad school. So it took me a little bit longer. Um, <clears throat> but I was in school that entire time. So I was like in, in, school school from like the age of like four or five until almost 30 give or take right um and i remember and you know choosing to to get my doctorate and getting into programs and shit there were a lot of other things like many arrivals within all that but i remember looking forward to the day that one that i graduated and two for psychologists the day that i passed my licensure exam and, and got my license, right? So like for us, there are, there are multiple hurdles you have to get through in order to be able to like legally call yourself a psychologist. <clears throat> and I remember when I finished my program, I was like, Oh, holy shit. Like I'm, I'm almost a psychologist. Like I have my degree, but I can't practice independently. So I was like, Oh, I haven't fully arrived yet. So then I was like, Oh, the big deal is when I pass my licensure exam and get my license in front of me, my physical license. And the test we have to pass is called the EPPP, whatever the fuck it stands for. I'm blanking right now. The examiners of professional psychology, some fuckery. Um, it is the most difficult test I've ever taken in my life. <clears throat> and I remember, and it's one of those things where like you can only attempt it so many times. And then if you fail, you're just fucked your whole life. 
And I remember passing it my first time, which is incredibly rare for, for you know, a lot of people. And I still have no idea how I passed it. But I remember getting that print off and said, hey, you passed. Congratulations. And feeling nothing. Like, it, it wasn't even that, like, I was a little, ex- like, the only thing I felt was relief in so much as, cool, I don't have to take this bitch again. There was no, I have arrived, I am a psychologist, I am official, I can start my my life as a, as a real, quote unquote, adult now. I felt nothing. And to work for 12 plus years of your life to and looking forward to this moment, only for that day to come and you to feel zero emotions is just fucked. So that was when I was like, there there is no arriving. Like the, either there's always something next or you... Or like the pursuit of the thing is where all of your emotional investment and that roller coaster of emotions is. Because actually doing the thing frequently, you don't actually feel anything. Mm-hmm. Corey, there was something you said in the middle there that I think is really important, which for me was this cycle of every time I got the thing, I went, oh, no, that wasn't the thing. Mm-hmm. This is the real thing. That for me is how the arrival fallacy continually perpetuates itself rather than actually seeing the pattern for what it is, which is I keep thinking it's the thing, but maybe there is no thing. You go, ah, I was wrong. That wasn't really the thing. This is the next thing that I'm looking at. That's really the thing. Yeah. It always makes me think of someone uses this phrase, um, moving the goalpost. Right. It's like each time that you meet the goal, it's like it just it gets moved again. And so there's no reason to stop and celebrate because you you just keep moving it. But just want to hear yours. Well, real quick, though. Oh, yeah. With that, like I think for people with like, quote unquote, regular jobs, that is always present because like there's always a promotion or a raise or like something else you can chase. And then like Mm -hmm. with entrepreneurship, there's always, you know, you can always chase another comma in your bank account or another, Mm -hmm. you know, another digit, right? Like there's, you can always build a a bigger audience. You can always build another thing, another thing. And it's so easy to get caught up. And then I think that is what we've all kind of experienced. But yeah, Jess, I'm curious what your experiences have been. Yeah. I think for me, what's dropping in now is a lot of it for me has been looking for Things that will validate, like, yes, I'm as competent as I think I am. Mm. I've I've really made it. So so it's less about money I've made or something like that, but achievements that are like, yeah, I'm as good as I want to be or think that I am. And similar to Ricky, started really early with just, hey, I want to be a top tier student as much as I can in college. And then you graduate having achieved high in the class and then go to college and then just another wave of problems emerge around college. And then it was, ah, I'll fix this by just being a 4.0 in college. And I did relatively well. And then, then you graduate from college and it's like, ah, I'm not, I'm not quite actually there yet. Mm-hmm. And then for me, it was just every major thing from there. It was getting a job at a startup and you get a job at a startup and you're like, well, this is, everything's still a mess. And I think it becomes particularly salient. And I'm wondering what this was like with your all experience is also coaches and becoming solopreneurs. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's also this um, ability to hold on to a myth that it's like, especially if you feel like calling to a vocation, mm-hmm. that is once I take a leap into that vocation, 
then I'm just going to be in a field of dandelions all day. I think that was one thing that I had around being a coach and not to invalidate pursuing goals. Because I do think doing something like that, pursuing a calling, there is a fulfillment that drops in. But my experience is there's always another class of problems that emerges. Right. I think there's a quote somebody said, it's like you trade in the Honda Civic of problems for like a Ferrari of problems. You're just trading Mm -hmm. up to higher classes of problems. And the delusion is once I have that car, there will be no more problems. That for me is really the embodiment of the arrival fallacy. And then it played out. I don't know if it played out for you, but I, then I went and became a coach and it was once my practice is X, Y, Z successful, then I'll know. And then even recently there was, you, you know, I'm going through this training program with a conscious leadership group. It was like, Oh, if they accept me into their program, then I'll know. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a, moving of the goalposts, but also an achieving of the goalposts, thinking that will be the end. And then immediately turning out and going, well, ah, this wasn't the end, but those goalposts will finally be it. Yeah. I think that goalposts are really important, but keeping it in context of there's always going to be something more I can do because the more I achieve, the more I realize how much potential I have and can Mm -hmm. continue to achieve. Right. So I think it can be healthy. The issue is when you say, when I reach this goalpost, then I can be happy or I can Mm -hmm. be content or, or satisfied or fulfilled. And it's like, if, you know, everything has, has a sacrifice, everything has a cost. Right. And if you sacrifice everything for this, to achieve this one thing, but you hated the, the, the path that it took you to get there, then you achieve this thing and then you feel nothing. So Mm -hmm. it's like, so you felt like shit for years and did shit you hated for the payoff of feeling nothing. (laughs) Like if you don't enjoy the shit you're doing and don't take the time to celebrate these small things, you're just signing up for, for a life of, of what I call lucrative misery. Like, yeah, you made money. Yeah. You, you did X, Y, or Z, but you never actually enjoyed anything of what you did or achieved. I think it's, I, I love it because what you make me think of Corey is like the, the saying, the ends justify the means, right? It's like, we so often are in this process of, okay, if I just keep going, if I hustle, then I'll get this and then I'll get this and, and then I'll be able to slow down. Then I'll feel relief, right? Then I'll feel fulfillment and success. Then I'll feel validated as a coach because I've reached this goal. But the fact of the matter is, is that very rarely do you get there and it's suddenly, and now we have a new goal, right? We, we switch from the Honda to the Ferrari, like it's all changed. And so, so much of this is Corey, I think you said it really beautifully, which is like, it, it, to me, what I was hearing in that is it's really around figuring out how to be enjoying and in the process, not the output, right? It's like, if the process to get there made you lose your mind then how the hell do you think you're going to be happy when you get there unless you're like, I just needed to finish it. Now, full disclosure, there's going to be things in our lives that we do sort of push for that week. We're going to push for that weekend. You know, there's going to be like, Corey, I've seen you go into like a hidey hole to like figure something out and then emerge from it. And that's a little bit of a hermiting. Just like you and I have done this in different components. But if we're doing that all the time, then yeah, lucrative misery. Like you're going to be... So I, I think about it so much, especially when you're dealing with like the corporate setting or you're in this space because your organization wants that, 
Like your company wants you to never feel satisfied. It wants you to keep pushing and getting better and getting better. Oh, you hit your sales targets. Amazing. Next quarter, you can do more, right? It's never like, oh, and here you go. No, it's like, here's a $10 Starbucks gift card. Next, next quarter, do seven mil. So I really think about it as the process, being in the process and enjoying the process and making the process feel good. I think one huge component of the myth <clears throat> is uh, the mistaking of contentment and happiness for relief. As in, it mm. feels like there's this belief that if I just work hard enough, if I just work hard enough, then I'll be able to take this, this gorilla off of my back. If I make enough money, if I'm successful enough, then I can take the gorilla off my back and then I'll be successful and content. But the reality is relief is not equal to contentment and happiness. It's a much more temporary and contentment and happiness is actually a completely separate muscle that you need to develop. And so a huge component of the, the fallacy and why it's such a trap is it's thinking, I'm going to use a body analogy. Um, it's kind of akin to thinking once I work out my legs enough, I'll be content with how my arms look. And it's like, that doesn't really make any sense because you're not actually yeah. exercising the muscle that you're, you're caring about. You're, you've mistaken mm -hmm. how this whole process works. That, that thing over there is something entirely separate. I love that. Well, and Justin, going back to <clears throat> the question you asked a couple minutes ago about like our experiences venturing into coaching, right? Um, <laughs> so two things. I can't remember if I'll talk about this on the podcast or not, but when I first started creating content, several years ago. And I, this was like on medium, like it wasn't anything big, anything, you know, whatever. I had like maybe 50 or 200 followers on medium, like a platform I didn't own. But I was like, I, like, I didn't think I would be an influencer because I hate that term, but I would look at other people who had large personal brands and I was like, Oh fuck, I'm going to have to like get this big ass um, mailbox for all this fan mail I'm going to get. Like I can't get the smallest one. I got to get like this big one because people are just going to send me all kinds of shit because they're going to love everything that I do. And then like, okay, you know, now I'm going into coaching and I'm going to, you know, start this professional Twitter. And because I'm a psychologist, clearly people are just clamoring to talk to a real psychologist because there are so many, you know, low level, quote unquote, low level coaches or advocates and things who like read three books on psychology and then now they're whatever. I will stand so far above everyone else. And then like I got on Twitter and everybody was like, bro, who the fuck are you? Like, cool, you're a psychologist, but what does that mean? Like, one, I don't even know what psychologists do. Two, I don't know you. I don't trust you. I don't understand you. I don't resonate with you. Who the fuck are you? So it was just like this huge slap in the face of like, nobody cares who you are until you, you prove to them that you're worth their time, energy, and attention. Right? So I thought I had arrived before I even got on social media. I thought I had arrived as soon as I hit publish the first time. And it was like, no, like you in no way have. So it's like, I felt like I was... I felt like I had arrived, realized I hadn't, and realized I was basically starting at zero all over again because I had entered a new domain. At my therapy job, I, I had arrived. I had like I was, you know, toward the, the upper echelon of, of professionals. But in this new domain, I was basically starting over. 
And I think that that is the thing that a lot of people see when you challenging yourself and, and staying at like your growth edges. It's constantly of, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I thought I'm going to be, fuck, I'm at the beginning again. And I, I personally think that that is a very, it can be a very healthy way to go about life because you make significant progress that way versus staying in your small little comfort zone. But it can also really lead to a lot of misery if you don't keep it in context. So I, I want to open up the door to just map the territory of how we see the arrival fallacy play out with the people that we work with. Given that we, we cover a broad swath of people, Ricky is laughing right now. How do you see this tr trap play out with the types of people that you support? Ricky, what are your thoughts? Why do you want me to go first, Corey? Why do you want me to go first? I you go just first. got off of a fucking diatribe. Oh my God. I'm trying to be polite and not a conversational <laughs> narcissist. I'm trying to think. I Okay, so here's what I'll say is that for me, this shows up a lot. It shows up in a lot of different ways. Ultimately, when you talk about the rival fallacy, if we just want to break it down, it's basically, I, I'm standing my goalpost moving because I think it's easier. So it shows up a lot, right? Because I work with individuals who are, they're leaders, they're professionals, they're trying to figure themselves out. So that means that ultimately maybe they're starting their own business. So very similar feelings to what Corey was describing, right? You're like, oh, now I'm going to have a million clients. And then you just have like crickets and no one shows up. And you're like, oh, you know, I've always worked in a corporate setting and working for myself looks different and how I set myself up looks different and how I support myself looks different um, and how fast things move looks different. So I've had that. And then definitely a lot of times, because I feel like a lot of folks I work with are usually uh, parents or they're doing caregiving in both directions as well, you know, caregiving for children and caregiving for aging parents. And so a lot of the, the when I have this, I will be able to do this. When I have X, I will be able to do Y. It happens all the time, right? When I get that promotion, I will be able to take a vacation. When we hit this level of Series B funding that we need to, I will be able to hire someone and I'll have more time for myself. When, and I hear it. It's all the time, right? That comes up a lot. Um, and then I hear it a lot in terms of, of the validation component, which is, what comes first? Believing that I can do the thing or someone else externally telling me that I can do the thing, which I think is really interesting in the, in the arrival fallacy. And actually, Corey, when you were talking about it, it was making me think about it too, because you even used a little bit of this language. You probably didn't even notice it that because you were talking about, oh, I thought when I joined Twitter, I'd be like, hey, I'm here now. But there was this actual component of not only am I not here now, and the way that you figured that out was from the external forces that you're like, oh, I thought I was here. And now everybody's telling me I'm not here. Oh, crap. And so that shows up a lot for the folks that I work with too, which is, you know, someone says, I'm going to be this, or this is who I am and this is how I promote myself, but this is how other people see me. And how do I work within that navigation? How do I arrive when part of the component of arriving is for myself and part of the component of arriving is for the people around me? So those are, I think those are like the three main areas that I've heard it come up with my folks, which is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of ways that it shows up. Part of arriving is for myself and part is for the people around me. I didn't 100% follow there, Ricky. So the way I think about that is, let's say that you have someone who's like, I'm a leader. When am I a leader? Is it when I tell you I'm a leader? Is it when I have six people that report to me? Is it when 
someone else is referring to me as a leader. It's almost the identity shift that also sometimes happens in the in the arrival, which is that sometimes, you know, people mm. are saying, oh man, you're so good. You're so good at this. You're so good at this, but you haven't adopted it. You haven't arrived. You haven't felt that feeling of I'm now in this new echelon, right? Like, and then we have components that it could be you, it could be totally in your control and it could be outside of your control as well. So that shows up too, when you think about the arrival fallacy for the folks that I work with. Yeah. So you're saying, um, is it even an internally located sense of mm-hmm. arrival or are you saying one, when people perceive me as X, Y, Z? Yeah. Which is, I, yeah, that clicks that that's almost an even more dangerous trap because that's even it's incredibly brittle, right? That's going to come. You just left everything in someone else's hands. Come and go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. To me, so like with your work, Ricky, mm-hmm. I think when you have a title that allows you to have a, a clearer demarcation of like you have arrived in that you have a new title, you are in a new position. But it, it makes me think of like when you arrive in a place you don't feel ready to have arrived in, that's when imposter syndrome shit kicks in. Oh, hell yeah. Like, fuck, I just got promoted to this position. Now I am officially, I am a leader. I have arrived sooner than I expected. Mm -hmm. I must be an imposter. Right. Which is, I would argue that almost always happens with the arrival fallacy because I'm swinging usually for something big. I'm swinging for a big paradigm shift. And then almost always when I get there, I am fucking underwater because I'm in a whole new world. Like you said, Corey, my experience of this is the same. And with the people I work with, I get there and then suddenly I'm back at zero. And not Mm -hmm. only do I not have a sense of arrival, I have the sense, holy shit, I'm even further back than I was. Actually, the closest I am to arriving is the instant before I arrive. (laughs) It's like Zeno's paradox. You can only ever get infinitely close to it. But then the moment you cross the threshold, you're actually the furthest back you've ever been. Yeah. And then if you've hooked your sense of happiness and contentness and well-being to that, you're just playing a game. You're just teasing yourself. You're getting close and then you're back. Ricky, what were you going to say? No, we're good. Okay. Thank you. Well, the other other thing with this is that I've I've seen too, both with my clients and – myself and things too is one sometimes other people will tell you they think you've arrived and you're mm-hmm. like you have no fucking idea you're so <laughs> wrong you're so wrong mm-hmm. right because like I, and i think part of this is both we compare ourselves to people we look up to but also compare ourselves to the person we know we're capable of becoming and both of those people are always five, 10, 20 years ahead of us. Right. So it's like, I know I'm capable of more. I know what I want to arrive at, but you never feel like you are. So anytime somebody else says, Hey man, you've arrived. Like, I wish I had your life. I wish I had the connections you did or the platform you do or the influence you do, whatever. When somebody tells you that you're just like, no, like, I feel like everything I've built is negligible in comparison to the things that are driving me forward. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that can be healthy if you keep it within context, but frequently it leads to dissatisfaction and outright misery for a lot of people. Yeah. Cause there's something embedded in that, which is 
I can't appreciate myself, my progress, or where I'm at until I've arrived. Right? Somebody else appreciates me, and I'm not open to it. Because I'm like, you, you literally said it, Corey. You have no idea. I, I haven't arrived. We, we can't appreciate where I'm at because I'm not there. But then again, if the function is, well, once you get there, you're instantly, again, at the back of the stadium having to run all the way up to the front again. What you're actually saying is, I'll never really appreciate myself. I'll never really appreciate where I'm at right now. I'll never appreciate how far I've come. I feel like a lot of the arrival fallacy is, is delaying cultivating a good relationship with yourself until you arrive. And if that never comes, really the game you're playing is I'm just going to have a bad relationship with myself 24 seven. Yeah. Well, what is it? Go ahead. I was going to say is that I think there's also something there, Corey, that's really interesting to think about with the arrival fallacy as well, which is that the expectation that we're comparing ourselves to another individual, right? So that it's like, Oh, okay. When I'm have the same platform of this person, then I will have arrived. And Corey, I think you said it really well, which is like, not, you don't know me, right? Like you don't, you don't understand what I've been doing. And I think that's part of it too. Like sometimes you have this arrival fallacy. This, this is actually where we kind of run into problems with like comparison and jealousy because you say, Oh my gosh, when I have that, when I have that person's life, I will have arrived, but we don't even really know what that person's life looks like. We don't really know, you know, sometimes you'll talk to some, sometimes I'll talk to someone and they'll be like, oh, I really, I really want to be C-suite. I really want to be C-suite. And when you start uncovering it, they don't want to be C-suite. They want the title, but they haven't really thought about what's it going to be like to be C-suite. What's it going to be like to be. And so I like, I love it. I have, I've had a couple great clients who've shifted. They've left C-suite when we work together because they're like, I thought I wanted to see sweet. I built this chip on my shoulder. All I wanted is this, all I wanted is then I had C sweet. I haven't, I haven't slept a full night in a, in two years because every single night I'm going to sleep and I can't keep track. Are we going to make it through payroll for the next payroll? Right. And so it's, I think it's also this idea of this comparison component that exists when we focus on the arrival fallacy, when we're also basing it off of what we see other people as what we think success should look like. And then when we go and experience it, we haven't really thought through, well, what is it going to feel like when I get there? Is that actually aligned with my values, my goals, what I want, right? And so sometimes what you think or what you've seen in someone else, then when you get there, you're like, no, this is terrible. <laughs> I got to go. And that was the thing that you were making me think of when you were talking about it. Well, and like, what is that book, like The Gap in the Game or some shit? I haven't mm -hmm. read it, but the, the concept, right, of basically you can focus on how much you have progressed and gained or you mm -hmm. can focus on like the gap between you and where you want to be, right? Mm -hmm. And like in, in, in psychology, I can't remember if I pulled these terms out of my ass for the show or not, but th these there are two terms called upward and downward social comparisons, Upward social comparisons are when you compare yourself to somebody you perceive as being above you in some way, like more popular, smarter, wealthier, whatever. Downward social comparisons are when you compare yourself to people you perceive as lower than you, right? Mm -hmm. There is a healthy balance between looking at where you are versus where you've come and how much progress you've made mm -hmm. or... Um, especially like, it, you know, in, in my corners of the internet with creators and shit, people talk about like selling your sawdust or talking to people two to three steps behind you and teaching them everything you've learned. Right. 
Um, and like, you know, I by no means consider myself like a great content creator. I feel like I don't know fuck all about anything. But then when a friend who is like, Hey, I would like to start creating content. I'm like, Oh, here's like a hundred different things you can do or things you need to understand before, you know, pitfalls you can avoid. And they're like, Oh, did you know so much? I'm like, I, I don't though. I really don't. But then also doing the upward socials to keep you motivated. That allows you to, to strike this balance between gratitude and focusing on the growth you've already achieved while also maintaining a healthy drive forward. But mm -hmm. what most people do is they only do one or the other. Cause if you only do downward, then you're just a narcissistic prick. If you only do upward, well, you're just miserable and, and, and imposter 24 seven. Yeah, the, the one thing I see that is common with founders, leaders, people building companies, I guess it's not one, but it, it, it can both happen between big milestones and the current problem du jour. So if, you're, if people are in really chaotic environments, like I've seen a lot of founders be like, uh, there's one teammate who's a problem teammate. It's like, once that teammate's gone, mm -hmm. we're just going to be cruising. It's going to feel great. Once this product is launched, we're just going to be cruising. Once this marketing campaign goes, we're just going to be cruising. Things are just going to feel so good. And then there's also the zoom out. Once we have, like you said, Ricky, uh, our Series B fundraise, then we're just going to, we're validated. We're, we're alive. This company, we're settled. We've got it all locked in, which goes all the way up to once we're acquired or we're IPO'd, then, then I'll know. Which actually, I know a couple CEOs who've gone through acquisitions, and oftentimes the people around them who have before will say, "Make sure you find something to do with your time, and also maybe consider getting a therapist because this is uh, one." Some friends were really honest that this is the time where you're most likely to get in trouble in your life. You're most likely to um, start abusing substances, potentially get addicted. You're most likely to uh, potentially get into a, an affair if your marriage isn't rocky because that big of a transition, I like you've been working for it for maybe a decade and then your company gets acquired and then suddenly you're sitting on your ass. You're confronted with the void of the paradox, of the arrival fallacy or the, mm -hmm. the falsity of the arrival fallacy. And that's the point where you're most likely to, to really succumb to a dark place because you're really confronted naked with, Oh, that wasn't real. Well, I also think, Letting go of the, just the delusion that once you succeed, you're just going to sit on the beach and sit Mai Tais for the rest of your life. I and don't that you know want any, that. Exactly. So I, don't, I don't know anyone who legitimately enjoys their life, who they quote unquote succeeded, they hit it big or whatever. And then that was the rest of their life. You may do that for a couple of weeks or a month or, or, you know, tour around, do a bunch of vacations or some shit. But eventually it always comes back to the existential question of like, who am I? What is my purpose? What do I want my purpose to be? You, and for nobody is that, is the answer to that sitting on a beach, sipping fucking Mai Tais. You will always want to do something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. The issue is when you feel like everything is hunky dory once you quote unquote arrive because you never fucking arrive. 
And and that part of the trap too, Corey, is you think that's all that you want because you can't have it all now because you're busting your back to arrive. What you're doing is- Go take a vacation and have a Mai Tai. You're you're swinging between two ends of a polarity. You're sitting Mm -hmm. at one end and you're miserable because it's your entire life. And then you imagine, oh, if I could just live permanently at the other end, then I would be happy. But actually, you're going to feel exactly the fucking same way because the key is I actually need to be able to hold both meaningful work and relaxation, leisure, or vice versa. If your arrival fallacy is, uh, I just want something that I love doing, well, that's also not going to fix everything. I would also argue or say that part of the reason why this is pretty freaking tricky is because we spend most of our formative childhood years existing in the, in the arrival fallacy actually being quite true, right? It's like, I go to first grade, I finished first grade, this completed. Now I have arrived in second grade. I graduate from first grade. Now I'm in second grade. And even between first and second grade, I get summer vacation, right? It's like, and then you go and you're like, okay, so I finished this semester. Like we spend, you know, 18, at least eight, you know, those first 18 years and even longer having this experience of when I take my final exam, I'm done with this. And then I even get like winter break or summer break, or I have a vacation and there's relaxation. It's very rare. And also you have more free time oftentimes too, that you actually can start to figure out how to have these things integrated. And then oftentimes I feel like one piece of advice that I had gotten when I first graduated from university was don't lose sight of the other things that you like to do, right? If you've been an overachiever, someone who's a little bit of a perfectionist, like you will find yourself throwing yourself into work, right? Now suddenly work is the thing that's, that's how we find validation. That's how I find support. My next title jump, my next role, my next opportunity for ownership. But if you actually create like oh, I also want to do improv or I want to take a ceramics class or I want to get into jujitsu if I'm Corey. Like if you integrate, <laughs> this is fucking with you. If you integrate that into things, I think there's, there's, and we're not looking for like balance. Things aren't perfect, but we grew up in a setting that it was sort of like, oh, and then I get the weekends. Well, trust me, you have fucking kids. You don't get the fucking weekends anymore, right? It's like totally changes. And so then it's like, how do you survive? You have to yeah. figure out how to navigate current state. If you grew up, Ricky, I'm totally with you. If you grew up in Western culture and you've mm-hmm. and probably much more than Western culture, but I, I know Western culture, like don't beat yourself up if you fall and pray to the arrival fallacy because it was the water so many of us swam in for so many years. It makes a lot of sense. And do we want to decouple from it? I, I want to transition us here now. Let's Corey, if you have another point, we can open it. But okay, so we've all... The, the arrival fallacy, it is presumably real. We have all agreed to it. We've highlighted some ways that it currently shows up. The question is, what the hell do we do about it? I feel like it's very easy to twist yourself up into pretzels around this. Do we abandon goals all together? Do we quit on the things that we're pursuing to simply build the happiness muscle? Like literally, okay, the arrival fallacy is real. What the hell do I do with that? I have things to say. Can I say things? I would love for you. To, that's literally what I, we're here for, Ricky. Is that why we're here? Okay. This is so a show here. where we say things. This, this is, is a show, show where we say things. This is when I'm telling you my thoughts and things. Anyway, so here's what I think about is that, first of all, I think as we've been talking, we've been talking about the arrival fallacy in a lot of different ways, right? Like how this might show up for you. You might notice it's comparison for you. You might notice it's the feeling of 
freedom, whatever it is, I think it's important to start to recognize where is this showing up for you as a person? Where has it been impacting you? Because that's going to give you some things. But I'm, I selfishly, I have things that I want to share that I've worked on because not, not that I've arrived, but this is something that I work on a lot. This is something that I work on with my clients a lot. It's something that I work on myself a lot because I don't want to be a miserable fuck all the time. And so I'm going to give us a couple things. I I just want to say, I agree. It's so incredibly selfish of you to share the things that have worked well with you for this. A hundred percent. Thank you so much. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for recognizing me. So selfish to share what's worked. Okay. I have a few things. Okay. Right. I'm not going to talk about goal setting. One of you guys will want to talk about goal setting, but one of the things which I really enjoy is, and a lot of this actually comes from James Clear, Atomic Habits, right? Great book. But if you haven't read it, fucking read it. It's good. You're going to learn some stuff. But a lot of that work is around navigating and enjoying the process, not the outcome, right? One of the things that I remember, and I think about this a lot, was that let's say you're training and he talks about this, you're training for something. So like years ago, you guys, you can't run a half marathon and not talk about the fact that you ran a half marathon. So I'm going to talk about it. So I was training for half marathon and this whole thing is around like, how do you navigate that? Right. Is the arrival me finishing the half marathon? No, it was not. The arrival was a habit formation and the identity shift of saying, Oh, I'm a runner. It was navigating the idea that, Oh, I've arrived as a runner. And navigated the idea of the process, the thing that I found joy in was like the day that I took a run that I didn't really want to, or the way that I felt after I hit my longest run that I'd ever taken. And then really what he talks about is like the outcome, like when you actually do the thing, that's not when you celebrate. That's not the, that is, that is the, like the celebration of all of your effort and achievement. That's not the goal. That's the celebration of the effort and the achievement. And so I crossed the finish line and full disclosure was I fucking sobbed. Because I was like, yeah, dude, I've been doing this for months. I was someone who had never run before. I took up running for the first time and then I did this thing and I felt this. So for me, a huge part of it is playing into the process, right? Recognizing how can I enjoy the process? How can I let that feel joyful and fun rather than like the goal is the thing that I'm going for. It's the process of creating the habit formation. I think that's really helpful. And then the second thing that I spent a lot of time talking, well, two more and then I'm done. The second thing that I spend a lot of time talking about is the, when I have this, I'll be better playing with the, if you never fucking have that, what can we do now? Right. If you say, when I have more money, I'll have more free time. It's like, what can you fucking do now to have more free time? Is there anything, any little sliver that we can get out of it? And I think that's really powerful, especially in a society where we're always tapped. We never have enough time. We never have enough money. We always want more. Capitalism sucks fuck you. But ultimately like having this element of, well, what sliver can I get now? I think makes a huge difference. And the last one that I'll highlight is playing with gratitude, celebration, finding like joy and pleasure in each moment that you're doing. So like I signed up for Twitter. Let's celebrate it. Yeah. I only have 20 followers who don't know who I am. Amazing. So still celebrate. I'm still here. I still showed up at Twitter. I'm still doing something new. I'm still creating this new beginner's mindset of being challenged and hanging out on my growth edge, which is something that not a lot of us can say for ourselves. So those are, those are my three things, which is like, you know, enjoying the process, finding those celebrations, finding, squeezing out what we can in the process, in the moments. Those are all the things that have worked for me and for my clients. There's more. And, 
if you're listening and you've put it together, you're you're actually right. What actually happened is Ricky wanted to tell as many as people as possible that she had ran a half marathon. Did you, uh, and then did you we, know I ran a half marathon? And then we formed an episode around it. Next week's episode will be a cover for the fact that I'm a vegan CrossFitter and I want to make sure you all <laughs> – Hey, you I all can't know, eat gluten. know that about. I can't eat gluten. So. Oh my god, we're doing it. We're doing a whole episode on grains. <laughs> we're literally doing a month without grains right now, so you can shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're lost. Uh, Ricky, those were all beautiful points. I just couldn't. I couldn't help myself. Well, it's like I, they always make the joke that if you like runner, someone who runs or someone who's just CrossFit, they never fucking shut up about it, right? It's That's like. It. If you're a vegan, you, you, you just gotta, you gotta vegan, slip it in. You gotta slip it into conversation. If you're a raw vegan, I want at least one email that reminds me that eating milk is killing me. You know? Yeah. Those are the main ones that come up for me when I when I talk to the folks. <laughs> so ahead, my strategies slash ideas, not related to running or CrossFit or veganism. One thing that I have found personally very helpful, and and this takes time and intention, but. Surrounding yourself with people you think have arrived. Because like when I talk to, you know, uh, somebody who was one of my favorite writers and still are, but they become a friend and then I'm like, oh, you know, you're such a great writer. They're just like, eh, not really, <laughs> not compared to so-and-so or all oh, you, you've built up this large of an audience. Like that's so cool. They're like, yeah, but I wish I had this aspect of your workflow or I wish I had these connections that you have that I don't. Because when you see that one, nobody, nobody has arrived, nobody's perfect. Nobody fully knows what the fuck they're doing. That can give you a lot of permission to just kind of give yourself grace to, for the lack of, progress you feel like you haven't made while also motivating you to do better, to move forward. So it allows you to kind of straddle that line of satisfaction and ambition sort of. Um, that's been really helpful for me. And then I really try to focus hard on doing work that I would do for free. Right. So like if I work with a coaching client, Typically, it is a person I would work with for free because they are so interesting to work with. The goals they have are so intriguing for me to try to you know, tackle with them that honestly, even if they didn't pay me, I would probably want to do it anyway. They just so happen to pay me. Um, I'm a big fan of trying to play infinite games. So just, and that kind of goes back to, to the other point too, of just like, what could you do? basically forever because the process itself, whether or not the outcome is ever achieved, the process itself is intrinsically rewarding, intrinsically motivating and fulfilling that you do it anyway. And then the last one for me, cause you know, I can't not talk about death apparently is memento mori, right? Just using this whole idea of like using your mortality as a motivator to live fully. What is the work you want to do? Because if you sacrifice your life for this ultimate payoff, five, 10, 45 years down the line, only to get there and realize it wasn't worth everything you sacrificed for it, you, you have kind of fucked up your one go around life. 
right? So I really kind of use it as a forcing function of, is this, is this work worth the units of my life I am required to pay or invest to do this work? Well, like I had a, a professor early on, she was like, look, if you make $10 an hour and you buy a $100 pair of shoes, you didn't spend $100. You spent 10 hours of your life on those fucking shoes. Were they worth it? And that's the mm -hmm. shit that stuck with me since that day. Those are my strategies. Those are all also, really great. gluten is poison. Go ahead. To Apparently. me and my body personally. Okay. Good to know. I'm just going to say is that those were all great strategies, but really what I heard, Corey, is that you believe that both Justin and I have arrived because you spend so much time with us. So I love you, for, you all. Thank you for writing. And I legitimately love the time we spend together. <laughs> that is why I do it. He would do it for free. <laughs> I, I do want to double click around on being around people you make up have arrived. Like mm -hmm. get, if you can get in a fucking room with them hundred percent of the time. And, and if they're really open, vulnerable people, they'll be real about it. But, but some of the most transformative shifts in my inner psychology and relationship were when I was in the room with somebody, I really make up this person has arrived. Mm -hmm. This person is here. They've got it. And I see a moment where they're very clearly like, I don't think I've got, there's something transformative about actually having the embodied experience of feeling that from somebody you make up or have arrived and being like, and feeling, Oh, if I was there, I would be feeling the same thing, which is the same way I'm feeling right now. So I love that. That's been super transformative for me as well, Corey. The, the few points that came up for me, which I'm taking this question in a little bit of a different direction, but my experience when I really started to face the arrival fallacy, like really started to be like, I believe that was of, I'll be a little hyperbolic, but not really. It's kind of like terror and grief because there's a component of when I really faced it, I thought I was playing a game that would give me what I wanted. And now what I'm realizing was I was just playing a totally different irrelevant game the whole time so one grief and then two oh my god i don't know how to play the other game at all i am 30 35 40 45 26 whatever and i don't know how to swim and i'm in the middle of the ocean <laughs> and so i want to honor like if you're the experience of really owning the arrival fallacy and really leaning into like, I will never arrive can be deeply unsettling. At least it was for me because I think I was super, super bought into it for the first decades of my life. I love that. The, uh, yeah. The, the other thing too, what I'll say is actually the shift away from the arrival fallacy is not like binary, like it can often come on and off. I don't know about you two, but what I found was and I find in a lot of the people I work with, the arrival fallacy, one component of it for me is I assume something is missing now to motivate me to move forward. And if that's a really useful strategy, actually. Most people have learned that very young. And if I abandon that notion, if I abandon the notion that anything is missing now that will bring me happiness, 
for me at least, and, and Jim Dethmer has a beautiful quote on this on, on the Tim Ferriss show. He says, a lot of leaders have been operating with an engine of fear. And there's often a, a point where if I take out the engine of fear, or if I take out the notion of lack, I don't actually know how to motivate. I'm just kind of stuck there floating for a bit because it's an entirely different way of operating to just motivate from what will bring me joy today. What feels creative and flowy for me today? And you may even not be able to ask the question, or if you ask the question, nothing might show up. And so in my experience, the transition away from living from the arrival fallacy, which is living from something is missing, is very nonlinear. It's messy. It's sloppy. It's toddly. Like I still am playing this game day to day. And all the people I work with are still playing this game. It doesn't really go away. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, one of the primary shifts around the arrival fallacy, it's not let's abandon goals. It's can you want without anything lacking now? Can I want what I want without having to assume something's missing because I don't have it? And an analogy I've used before is like uh, a seed growing its way to a flower does not assume something's wrong because it hasn't flowered yet. Right? This is very, it's very like spiritual relationship to it, but I, I really like to, to and, and you probably don't either. You don't look at your tomato plants before the tomatoes are there and go, something's wrong with this tomato plant because there aren't tomatoes. You just go, yeah, it's a tomato plant. There aren't tomatoes here yet. And so one question is, can I want without needing to assume lack? And another is, can I want without needing to be attached to the outcome? Because that also creates lack. When I attach to getting the outcome, then suddenly there's a void because I don't have it now. And the answer might be no. The answer might be like, yeah, I, I, when I want, I attach and I assume lack. It's like, great, just notice. And notice for me that there's a practice of noticing that's the game I'm playing. I'm motivating myself by assuming something is missing. The one other thing that I'll add, Ricky, which flagged with you is you said gratitude, appreciate, celebrate. Yes, I love that. And I've been working on this with a few people, including myself lately. Um, I'm going to go back to the muscle analogy. Don't go through the motions. Like if you're going to sit down and do a gratitude practice, my invitation is like actually find what you're grateful for. Actually find what you're celebrating. Actually find what you're appreciating. And you, you might start and it might be hard to find something and might – the analogy I'll use is like, yeah, you haven't really picked up this weight before. It's heavy. It's heavy to find something. But actually sit there and do the work of finding gratitude inside of you and finding appreciation and finding celebration inside of you. Otherwise, you're, you're, just, you're, you're lifting with shitty form and the muscles aren't actually going to develop. And I, I'm sure some of you know this, but the, the, what the research shows is, yeah, literally neural circuits are the same. They develop the same way as muscles do. The, when you actually struggle to work with it, it's like when you were learning math or an instrument, the struggle of trying to do it down the neural circuit is what causes what's called myelin to coat the neural circuit and make it so it can travel that circuit faster, more easily, more coordinated. And so writing gratitude, things you're grateful for, and not actually trying to feel grateful and not feeling gratitude isn't actually building a muscle as opposed to actually sitting there and find and working to find gratitude, that's going to build the muscle where you're actually 
living in gratitude, where you're actually living in appreciation, where you're actually living in celebration. And so mm-hmm. while some people will say fake it to your to, till you make it, yes, and actually work to not fake it. Because <laughs> if you just keep faking it, what you're going to do is build a practice of faking gratitude and appreciation and not actually being able to plug into the place. Yeah. Your, your gratitudes can also look like mine, which are heavily food-based. That is an invitation. It's probably not for Corey right now because he's not eating gluten this month. No, no, no. I'd never eat gluten. We're just specifically not eating any kind of grain like rice and shit this month. I never eat gluten. Like medically. Oh yeah. Justin, one of the things that you, you said it, of what's called like a dialectic of this balance of you can simultaneously believe that you are enough as you are today, or you have achieved enough while also recognizing that you are capable of doing more, being more, achieving more, right? And that dialectic, that balance is very healthy. And if you can cultivate the ability to simultaneously hold two seemingly opposing beliefs, that is a very healthy way to go about life of, I am enough as I am currently today, and I'm capable of more. You do not have to choose between the two. Yeah. And, and similar to what I said before, I would urge you, if you want to play with it, actually go in and try and find I am enough. Again, don't play at it. See if you can build the neural circuit. One th- I've been ending all my calls recently with what's one thing you're appreciating about yourself from this call. It's really, so find things that, that felt good to you and just ask, let yourself ask that question. Or another thing, if you're a meditator or even if you're not a meditator, I find this form of meditation really accessible, which is called loving kindness meditation. It's meta meditation. Mm-hmm. This is a really great practice for um, the common ones will have you start with people that you genuinely love and usually end pointing it back towards yourself. And I found that to be a really useful tool for finding the place inside of you that's like an embodied sense of, oh, nothing's missing here. And then being able to hold the paradox of I want more, but also nothing's missing. I'm, I'm perfectly whole and complete now. And I can be more. I can flower more. I can grow more. But that doesn't mean anything's missing now. All right, friends. Anything else? that wants to be said on the arrival fallacy. One more thing that I just want to add is like being aware of how your environment sets expectations. Cause like all the arrival fallacy is, is reality not meeting your expectations, which is most problems in life is our, our reality doesn't meet our expectations. Right. Which is the whole Buddhism thing of like non-attachment shit aside. A lot of times the environment that you're in or that you have grown up in gives you this sense or tells you this sense of arrival of once you arrive, then you can be satisfied or enjoy your life and things, right? Or Mm -hmm. once you arrive, once you get this specific thing, then you will have made it, right? Because sometimes we struggle to figure out why we had this arrival fallacy or why we've worked so hard to achieve something we didn't actually want or enjoy having. And a lot of times that is a product of your environment. And that I don't, I don't just mean like blaming your parents for some shit or the school you went to. It can also be like 
your, your current job. It can be your current social groups, or it can be the feed you have cultivated on Twitter or LinkedIn or something else, right? Like Mm -hmm. just being aware of what your what messages your environment is sending you that may be exacerbating this arrival fallacy you may be struggling with. All in. I, I mm-hmm. notice that we create our social circles around the places where we're at. I'm so with you, Corey. I, for so much of my 20s, had a bias for holding closer or making new friends with people who I found were deeply ambitious, but also assumed lack. And it's been transformative for me to both reconnect with friends who are a little more chilled, a little less ravenous about that, uh, and also build social circles that are less that way to help me find it here. So yeah, if you're wrestling with the arrival fallacy and you look around and you go, God, everyone else around me is also playing this game, finding the people that you know and love or making new connections that aren't so addicted to it can be really helpful again for for finding yourself how not to be so plugged into it all the time. Well, like that was part of my my struggle early on was like all through grad school we like we were specifically told always introduce yourself as doctor. One supervisor was like no one cares about your opinion until you have doctor in front of your name. Once you become a doctor, then you will have arrived, then everybody will listen to what you have to say and just basically fawn over you. That was the expectation set from my environment. So then, and when I got onto a job, that was largely what happened, right? Everybody deferred to you, whatever. But then when I got out outside of those, those specific niches, that didn't hold true anymore. So then that was like a mind fuck of like, damn, like, do you mean to tell me that like most people don't actually give a shit that I have a doctorate? So just, but again, like that was, you know, five, eight, 12 years worth of education where everybody told me the exact same thing. So mm-hmm. just being aware of that as like with your current environment, because your current environment isn't emblematic of the world of every environment. Corey, I'm laughing because I was having the thought, yeah, they told you that. And then you met an asshole like me who would disagree with you on everything without, without any psych background. Well, dude, and like, I don't even introduce myself as a doctor very much. Like, I rarely ever say, like, I have a doctorate, like, just, just because, like, it isn't relevant most of the time for most people. And, and here's the background on that for everyone who's like, Justin and Corey don't disagree that much. Uh, when Corey and I first met, actually, I met Corey and Ricky because I run a mastermind for coaches. And almost every time an issue came up, Corey would be like, ah, this is how I approach it. And I would say something completely opposite and vice versa. Of course, Corey and I's approaches were always so opposite. And there's genuine respect and learned a lot. But yeah, yeah, I wasn't like, this dude's a doctor. I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, like, honestly, like, I don't know if we've done an episode on that, but that would be an interesting thing too. Cause like for the audience, like Justin, you tend to be much more emotion focused and like emotional processing oriented. I ironically, even like as like a mental health, whatever the fuck I don't, I never did. I never do. Like, it's a joke when I say, so how does that make you feel? Because I never actually fucking ask that question. I am very logical, very pragmatic, very like decision oriented. I pull from stoicism. I pull from other like very, you know, 
logical frameworks, like very like Vulcan almost. So that was always like the, the fun thing between us is like, you were very emotion focused. I was very logic problem focused. <laughs> but that yeah, it would be fun. Be fun. It'd be fun to have a uh, versus on like cognitive versus emotional and embodied practices. That would be interesting. Or like how we would tackle different, like specific, like somebody's struggling with this. How would you do it? How would you do it? How would you yeah. do it? Yep. Yeah. All right. Anything, any last words on the arrival fallacy before we land this plane, dock this boat? Are you saying we have arrived at the conclusion of this episode? We've arrived. We were relief. Dot, we are dot, perfect dot. and complete. I will be content with this podcast for the rest of my life. <laughs> and therefore content with myself. Oh, yep. that's exciting. I am both content as it is and, and know we are capable of more. I will hold this dialectic. Okay, friends. All right, friends. <laughs> I can't. This is lovely. Corey, you know, you know what you got to do to sign off. Doodles. <laughs>